Hi, this is Mario Andretti. Mark Blundell. Mark Priestley. Claire Cottingham. Ben Edwards. Jamie Chadwick. Mark Gallagher. Freddie Hunt. Bobby Eaton. Craig Scarborough. Alex Brundle. You're listening to... And you're listening to... You're listening to... Everything F1. Everything F1. Everything F1. Everything F1 podcast. Driven. Driven. Driven, driven by fans. For fans. Hello there and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast. My name is Sean. Joining me on the panel tonight is Coops. Evening, Coops. Hello, how are you? I am very well. And we also have Oscar. How's things, mate? Hi, mate. Yeah, all good. Hello, Sean. Hello, Coops. Excited to have to get stuck in. Yes. So before we do that, obviously, we are Everything F1. You can find us on all socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, TikTok, all at Join EF1. You can also check out our website, everythingf1.com, for daily news and articles about the world of Formula One and motorsport. You can also check out theraceworks.com for 10% off everything site wide using our code EF1. We will leave a link to that in the show notes as well if you want to check out some of their merch there. Now, then, we obviously did a race review for the Australian Grand Prix, which for a pleasant change was a really good race down under. It's not always been the case historically, at least to my mind, but we, we covered the, the, the race itself. So what we are going to do today is cover some of the, I suppose, news and fallout from what was, as Lando Norris said, a chaos filled race. And I think we'll start right there with, obviously, there was a lot of red flags, a record setting three red flags in a single Grand Prix. Now, Martin Brundle from Sky F1 has come out and defended the the FIA over the amount of red flags, but Toto Wolff has said that F1 must define, better define when red flags are used, because it does seem to be a little bit random. So Coops, let's kick off into this. What did you make of the amount of red flags and does F1 need to be a little bit more, I suppose, clear on where and when they should be used? It's quite difficult for Formula One, I think, in the FIA to define when a red flag is, because as we all know, there's so many scenarios that could be born in a race in Formula One that could happen. And if you get yourself into a very black and white set of rules, they're not able to be moved to deal with the situation. And nine times out of ten, if we're going to find a situation that's a bit random, Formula One will find it. Mm. And you'll have (laughs) so many people going, can we do that? Okay, I mean, I remember back in the day when a safety car was literally let alone a red flag. <clears throat> you know, Formula One cars racing with a parked car at the side of the track, not behind barriers, and obviously safety and things have moved on. So the justification for each red flag, I feel it's fair. You know, you had gravel at an area that was very high speed, especially now in, in where the track, the way the track is, is formed with the Albon issue with the gravel. There was apparently quite a lot of debris and carbon fibre from Kevin Magnussen's crash, again, coming off a pretty fast corner. A slightly weird way for Kevin Magnussen to come out of the to crash out in a pretty weird area for the, for the debris to be there. So I, I think they got it right. And I think there needs to be a certain element of responsibility on the drivers, especially for that final restart. Mm. They're the top, they're the 20 best drivers in the world. They know that people are going to be a bit manic. So let's behave yourselves for a couple of corners and deal with it. You know, the FIA can't be told, you know, fans can't say it's the FIA's fault because some drivers got things wrong. So that needs to... I think the FIA needs to be given a wee bit of slack for that. So I don't have a problem. Personally, I don't have a problem. Does it hurt for the rules just to be looked at and maybe tweaked to make a wee bit more of a definition? No. 
Not really. I mean, the, the rules and the regulations for Formula One are far too complicated as it is. <laughs> so maybe they just need that wee bit more slim line, a wee bit more understandable. So mm. the, the red flag comes out and you know exactly why. Interestingly, actually, maybe a wee bit more transparency. If you have, if any of the guys here in the panel, anyone listening, Formula E has a race director and they do like force course, full course yellows, a bit like IndyCar, they do certain things. But the race director comes out and we hear it on the in the broadcast and all the drivers hear it and the race director will come out and say, we're going full course yellow because of this and we're doing it in three, two, one. Then everyone knows why. The fans know why. The drivers know why. The teams know why. Would it hurt for the FIA to do something like that? Maybe not the race director, but maybe somebody comes up and says, it's going to a red flag because of the amount of gravel on turn four or we need somebody to fix a barrier. And it comes up, even if it comes up, because like, they can they can put a graphic up to say there's a new race leader. Mm. Surely they can put something up to say red flag due to debris or due to barrier issues or whatever, you know. Yeah, that's fair, because it does only just say red flag. And then, yep. I mean, we've sat there for the best part of, what, 45 minutes for the last one to figure out what the hell went wrong. And it's mm. an interesting point of, I suppose, just like a lack of clarity, because if you look at football, obviously, we've had VAR for several years now, and... There's still a lot of gripes. And my personal gripe with it is that I've been in a stadium. In, I went to a United match a few years ago and there was a VAR decision. And you just sat there twiddling your thumbs for however long it takes because there's nothing that the, the fans can see other than VAR decision being made. If you compare yep. that then to rugby, if you're sat in a stadium watching rugby and there's a TMO, a television match official uh, decision being made, the ref actually watches it on the stadium's screens. So everyone in the stadium can see what's happening. They can all make their own minds up over why it's happening. Usually it leads to, oh, they shouldn't be given that. But it it adds to a lot less, I suppose, confusion because you at the very least know, you, saw, you see what the ref saw and see why something was given. Oscar, I'll bring it on to you. Do you think there maybe needs to bring up a conversation again about, I suppose, the restart process? We We've had... The, the, the up and down and back and forth of should red flags be a rolling start? Obviously, we had that issue in Magello a couple of years ago where the field was backing up and starting and stopping and it caused... Actually, the that was the last time so many cars retired from an F1 race before Australia. But would maybe a more controlled restart allow them to like warm their tires up a bit more? Or maybe do we need to look back towards like NASCAR's overtime sort of situation? Do you think maybe something along those lines needs to be revisited rather than just always a cold tire standing start from a red flag yeah it's it's an interesting debate which has certainly been brought up once again by the australian grand prix in terms of restarts you know as you guys have kind of touched upon already that no one incident is the same in f1 so it is really hard to make it so black and white as to say right this is a safety car this is a red flag there are different factors the track layout of course how narrow it is in particular which as we know in australia is is a big issue it's you know it's essentially a street track really but with a bit of gravel around the outside so uh, of course there's always going to be some de- debris and and gunk thrown onto the track from an incident and i think when looking at the restart, you know, there's always going to be someone that complains, you know, as you've said there, transparency is really important in these matters. And I do definitely agree with both of you, you know, used a great analogy there, Sean, and something I was going to mention myself about rugby. The reason why rugby refs praise so much is because we know exactly what their process is 
from start to finish, mm. something that we don't really know with VAR in, in football yet, to be honest with you, even though it's on screen, it goes to Stockley Park. We don't really know much about that process. And similarly, in the F1 in the Australian Grand Prix last weekend, I don't really think that we knew maybe as, as fans who maybe don't know the rule book inside and out, why certain decisions regarding the starting procedure were taken. And what it certainly seemed like with that final grid restart. And, you know, I did actually forget about the rolling start. And that was a terrible incident as well, where the cars went into the back. And it was Giov- Giovinazzi who got a particularly bad hit in the Alfa Romeo. And that was a really bad incident in itself. But w- what it felt like to me in terms of Australia and why those comparisons have been brought with Abu Dhabi is because F1 once again chose to go down the entertainment route mm. rather than maybe what would be the best thing, you know, for the drivers and just finishing the race. They saw the opportunity. And I remember thinking about this on Sunday, well, morning, I guess, because I mean, I only finished about 9am here in the UK. So not exactly a late finish. But what I was really thinking about is from a, a fan's perspective, of course, I loved it. You know, I, I was rooting for Lewis to win and, and that gave him a chance and it was always going to mix it up a bit. But I think there was always a feeling from anyone who knows F1 and of course the F1 you know rule makers and the FIA they know the sport so well there was always going to be a bit of carnage there with all these drivers fighting for those but then of course to bring the argument back onto the other side as Coop said these are 20 of the best drivers in the world so Mm. shouldn't they be able to make it through those laps without another incident so it's a really tough argument but I think that there has to be some kind of resolution to make sure this doesn't happen again because of course there were some winners but a lot of losers yeah, I agree. And it's interesting you mentioned there, the two of you have said now about, you know, they are the 20 best drivers, or I suppose at the time it was what, the 16 best drivers that were left. And a big thing that a lot of them said, and that is a problem with these uh, late in the evening as well, restarts on what was all uh, cold tires, is that their tires just weren't warm enough. But I was having a conversation with someone in work the other day, yesterday, who is not the biggest Formula One fan, but he knows enough about it. And he did watch the race. It's only the first race he's watched this year. And he asked the question going, why can't the drivers fire their tires up? Like, is it to do with skill or what like that? And like, just, I couldn't really explain it to him about how they are the 20 best drivers in the world. Like it's such a basic thing. You make, you do a lap to the grid. You use that time to warm your tires up. They do it at the start of every single race. And it's not often we see that kind of a pile up at the start of the race. So, you know, even allowing for colder temperatures later in the day, why can't they do it again? Why is that still the go-to excuse? So I think it is certainly a bit of an onus maybe needs to be put back on the drivers as well. While we're on the topic of the FIA, there was some other, shall we say, controversial and very unclear decisions that they made with penalties being given in some places and not given in others. Talking, of course, about the Carlos Sainz penalty of five seconds, and we heard him, and I, I started tearing up hearing him. He was crying on the radio, and he was sat there in the pit lane during the red flag, saying that it's the most unfair penalty he's he's ever seen. And even, Car- even Fernando Alonso, who Sainz hit, said it was an unfair penalty. On the flip side of that, Gasly absolutely took his teammate out, wiped him into the into the wall in a much more dangerous stint and got nothing. And Logan Sargent rear-ended, I believe it was Nick DeVries, and took the two of them out of the race and got nothing. Where's the consistency there, Coops, in just those penalties? I didn't think the science one was that bad. If you look back, they didn't really touch that much. It was just enough to unsettle Alonso, who kept going, by the way. Yes, but I think the biggest problem you have with regards to that penalty is five seconds is the lowest penalty that the stewards can give during the race. 
They can't give a three second, two second, one second. The five second penalty is basically designed to make the person that caused the incident lose a place. Unfortunately, everybody was so close together. He went from was it third or fourth to last. It was a it was the mm. final finisher with that penalty. I think more of the confusion is why did he get one for what was a red? And I know everyone keeps saying, oh, they don't look at the results of the incident, but they do. And whether they say they don't or not, it has to play a factor somehow. You don't wipe someone out like in a big crash and it knock, oh, it's okay. Well, they didn't touch properly. But why did the other two not get penalties? And I heard someone say that maybe Gasly avoided a penalty because if he gets a penalty, he gets license points and he's banned. There's no, he yes. only needs two more. And the yep. minimum license points they give would be probably two or probably three. So did they not give him a penalty because for the sake of the sport, they don't want to be seen to be banning a driver? Yes. I said that at the race review. I said that. I think they built, but it's a bit like the analogy I gave was in football, a player's already on a yellow card, puts a tackle in, the referee doesn't give that, yeah, that player the yellow card. But if he wasn't on the yellow card, he probably would have got the yellow card. Mm. So they don't, <clears throat> so sometimes referees like, I would normally give you a yellow, but I'm not going to do it because I'll have to send you off and I don't want to send you off. Or even uh, just to add to that, Coops, a free kick or a penalty, a yep. decision which would have obviously been given on the halfway line in the box, suddenly it's not given because it was too soft. Yep. Mm. So, it's interpret. I think it's generally interpretations of the rules, but the incidents are different in terms of there's, there'll be mitigation for Gasly. Gasly was doing avoiding action and got caught up in the melee. Okay, he was looking one way, he didn't look behind him. Whereas Carlos Sainz made a mistake on his own, which caused a driver to spin out, which event. I mean, yes, they say they don't look at the aftermath, but as you say, they probably did. Because if that didn't happen, the rest didn't happen. Mm. You know, Gasly wouldn't go off and hit his teammate, the other guy, because it was a concertina, everything kind of... Oh, and again, the driver should have probably, in my eyes, been aware that that could have happened, especially in that corner. It's the first time those things have happened. Mm. So, yeah, I think I think it was... the. I, I think, personally, it was the fairest they could have done. They have to give him something because he made the mistake and spun a driver out. Any other time in the race, he's getting that penalty. Carlos cites that. In terms of Gasly and... Ocon, I did read the reason why he never got a penalty initially and it's slipped my mind, I'd need to go back uh, but I think there was a lot more mitigation that meant that he wasn't going to get a penalty but then they also, the other thing as well is they've all, they're already suffered because they're both out the race what are they going to give him? You know, mm. they can't give him a five second penalty because he's out the race, plus the Alpines are now going to have to deal with the cost cap issue of fixing two cars that are pretty well got. So, you know, sometimes it's that case of there's no point to give your sporting penalty because you're already penalised yourself by what you've done. If you follow, you're not getting any points. So you deal with that. Carlos Sainz kept going. You would have got points. That probably wasn't very fair considering you knocked somebody out who should have got a podium. Yeah. So there's the balance, I think. Yeah, understandable. Again, I think what, what a lot of fans would, would just want is some some clarification because especially in and around the time of the race, I know certain things have to be deliberated. Maybe they need to be looked at from different angles. But the fact that, I mean, it's it's two days later and it's still not 100% clear why one happened and the other didn't. Again, maybe just that level of clarification. Maybe they need to just look at when they're giving penalties to describe a lot more when why they're not and when something is no review necessary or no like no further action needed. Well, why not? Do you know, rather than just, nope, it's grand. 
tell us why. Like, even just like at the end of the race, tell us why that didn't happen. But it's that that sort of lack of well, why this and not that. I think is especially for casual fans is is probably you know a little bit disheartening yeah, I mean, sometimes. I think the FIA and maybe even Formula One to a point are missing a trick because you could do that even online and social media Monday Absolutely. Tuesday. But yeah. a, a Australian Grand Prix debrief. The driver so and so didn't get a penalty, and here's a very layman reason why. The next one, this is why we gave this, and that's it. That's all yep. you need to do. And then we can go on to social media. We can have it on the podcast. We can discuss it. You can review yourself, Sean, saying, "No, I don't agree with that decision." I could be like, "No, that's quite like that," you know. And it and it's discussions. At least it's out there. Everyone's going to make up their own minds. Mm. And for everyone that says, no, I agree with it, there will be somebody that will say, no, nah, I don't agree with it. And it doesn't matter if you follow the rules or whether it was the right decision or not. Well, there you go. I think I think that's a great idea. So there you go, Dominicali, if you're listening. We've, we've solved your problem. Yep. Right here, right now. We have solved the problem. One thing we think they did get right, though, Oscar, was the Haas protests. Obviously, they were... I think I think none of us are surprised that they did protest because Nico Hulkenberg would have got his first podium in Formula One, but I think it feels right that he didn't get it this way. They protested the restart procedure because Hulkenberg was in fourth. He would have dropped. He would have gained third after Science's penalty, but then the orders were shifted back to the previous lap, and Haas wanted to protest that essentially to try and claim a podium. But that was thrown out pretty much immediately. Right decision on that one? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's one we can all agree on. And unfortunately for Gunter, of course, had a great, a great performance and and fair play to Nico Hulkenberg as well. I, just as a small side notes on that, I, I find it really strange this kind of pattern of an F1 driver returning to the sport and going to Haas and then outperforming their their, their, their more, I guess you know. Um, uh, well, I guess the more experienced teammates or, you know, the more current teammates as, uh, as, mm. as K-Mag did to, to Mick last year. And now Nico seems to have the edge on him this year, which is, which is a bit strange. But yeah, I, I think it's fair. You know, at the end of the day, although it would have been a fantastic result for them, you can't really say that Hulkenberg would have deserved that from the, uh, from the first few incidents of that corner. Mm. So correct call from the FIA, in my opinion. And I think that they, they, they've got to take that forward. You know, if that was allowed, for example, it would have just led to more calls about the FIA being, frankly, in it for the show and, uh, you know, inept in terms of running, running it and, you know, deciding the rules. Because, uh, yeah, I think that would have been a bit, a bit ridiculous to, to let them hold on to it. Yeah, I, I would agree on that one. One other thing that they are still a little bit caught up in is technically there were four red flags because after the checkered flag, there was a red flag, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't think counts as a race red flag, but I don't think I've ever seen that before. And essentially what happened was spectators got onto the track. So the uh, Australian... Hulkenberg's car broke down. Yeah, which was still in ERS unsafe mode. Yeah, Hulkenberg himself had to do like the, the wild jump off to yep. not touch the car. And then when that got red flagged because of that, fans were coming on the track while the race was still going on. And then touching the car that wasn't actually decharged and ready. Yeah. So, so what's happened is the Australian Grand Prix Corporation, essentially the the, the organisers of the race at Albert Park in Melbourne, have, were summoned to the stewards. Coops, yep. uh, can you can you talk us through a little bit more about what happened and what will kind of come of this? So basically, they were summoned to the stewards because prior to the race, according to the the summon, which is very strange because it's the one, it's the exact same format as what you would get for a driver getting summoned, but it said Australian promoter. (laughs) 
So they get summoned. So prior to the race starting, which I didn't know, and then at the end of the race, fans got onto the track or got to areas they shouldn't have got onto. And there's been videos all over TikTok, all over Twitter, of people on the grass on the out, out on the track on the other side of the fence. And apparently a couple of people actually got onto the asphalt or went onto the asphalt. I mean, there's no accounting for stupid. Even if there's a possibility you could do it, why would you? Mm. Because you get hit. There's not much of an argument if you get hit by one of those cars at any particular speed, but they did. According to what I've seen since, it's because things were promised in terms of crowd control that were not action, which is a big deal. And of course, we've just mentioned fans got onto the track, were getting close to a car that because of the electrical gubbins in the cars now, they've got to wait a certain period of time to decharge, which meant that if a person touched it at the wrong time, they would earth the car and the current's going through them, mm. <laughs> which is not an argument you want to have. No, that'd uh, be a pretty nasty shocker, right? <laughs> it, w- it would be. Uh, so effectively what's happened is an investigation has been opened up into the conduct of the promoters uh, and they've been sent to to be investigated, my apologies, by the World Motorsport Council. Mm. So they're opening up an investigation into the situation and what exactly they've done. In terms of penalties, I would imagine... You know, probably the worst would be, you know, ripping up your contract, which I doubt is going to happen. But, more you know, likely a fine, I would have thought. Financial issues and maybe a bit more stringent, you know, maybe they'll get the, the assistant head teacher to come in and keep an eye on them <laughs> and make sure that things are done. So when they say they've promised something, that they get it double-checked and, mm. you know, something from the FIA Formula One double-checks and things. So... They've got a bit of explaining to do over the next coming weeks, coming months. And in all honesty, it should never have happened in the first place. Absolutely. And let us very much hope that it does not happen again, because obviously we see a lot of tracks, fans get to go onto the pit straight to go up to the podium, but that usually happens. The, the, The barriers are opened carefully by the stewards and the security people when all the cars are safely back in the pit lane and there is nothing on track, at which point they are then allowed out onto the pit straight to go and flood for the podium. And that's fine. But while there are still cars on track, there should never be humans on track. Even stewards yep. aren't allowed on track if cars are about to come past. I so mean, that's... It's a very clear, defined system. Mm. You know, fans are allowed to come on track, but are not until you see, I think it's like a car. I think there's a certain car with a green light that goes round. And it let, that lets everybody know, right, on you go, and the stewards can step back. But cars were still racing. Mm-hmm. You know, even me, who's a, a certified Formula One fan, I would not be going near a track until I hear something over a tannoy or somebody saying to me, I'd, I'd stand there waiting because I'd be mm. like, oh, I got fast. And I'd be like, right, can I go? Can I go? And the minute I'm like, yep, you can go. And it's an official, not just David sitting behind me. Mm. You know, I'm not going on the track. So these people need to take a bit of orders for themselves as well. But, you know. And we yeah, should say, yeah. because I've I've seen on Twitter, because of course I've seen on Twitter, people saying, oh, well, they weren't going that quickly. An F1 car not going that quickly is still faster than your road car goes on a motorway. Yes. <laughs> and if, yes. you've ever, if you've ever gone to a Grand Prix and strolled around, even at free practice, even when they're trundling around and on TV, it looks like they're not moving. That thing will flash past you and kill you by just, just glancing off you. So you yes. wouldn't want to be on track, even if an F1 car is stopped dead, because... You just you don't want to go anywhere near them until they're up on jacks in the garage. So let's hope that just doesn't happen again. And also, just before we go, we have had an incident of that happening back in South Africa. And just to 
give us an idea, the only way the ID the young man, because he was running across the road on a live ground. He was a steward or a marshal, I should say. And he was coming across the, with a fire extinguisher to help put out a car that went on fire. He was struck by the Formula One driver, Tom Price, I think his name is. Unfortunately, he was killed in that incident as well because the fire extinguisher hit him in the head. Mm-hmm. The only way they ID'd that man was by getting all the marshals together and finding out which one didn't come back. That, you know, there's no argument. This is, you couldn't, it's trying to explain to people exactly how hard, how not an argument this is and how much, how dangerous it is, 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 you know. Well, of course, it was also the answer. It was a 2004, 2003 in Silverstone where you had that looper running down the hangar straight. In the middle yeah, of the race, with, with the yeah. cars trying to weave in and out of it with the flags, he was flying a sign. Yeah, he was, and the the marshal was great that day because he just brought, he just fired them to the ground and dragged them. Would be tackled the collar yeah. just straight off. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah that was that, horrendous. That that was absolutely shocking. It was one of the most shocking things I, I ever remember seeing. And the the thought that the, not that they were necessarily track invaders because it wasn't during the race, but the thought that there were up to a few hundred people on the track when Formula One cars were passing them at any speed is a bit of a scary thought and it is quite lucky that I know you said before we got on here, Coops, that someone was hit by debris from Kevin Magnussen's car in, but this was before they all started to invade the track. So, you know, it, it is dangerous to sit near a Formula One track at any time, yeah. especially especially when Kevin Magnussen decides to stop turning and hits a wall. I mean, we, we all remember how close Joe's Alpha was. Yeah, was Silverstone. The, the, uh, the barriers at Silverstone last year. I mean, yeah. yeah it's, I mean, what, so it's what, a dangerous what, sport at the end of the day. It, so, yeah. Uh, uh, a wee caveat for the incident with Magnuson, just a uh, Hulkenberg, sorry. No, it was Magnuson, my apologies. That was quite a freak thing because that bit of debris flew up in the air 20 metres. Like, mm. that doesn't normally happen. And all the fences are governed very much by regulation. The FIC, your fences have to be to this height mm. and they've got the lip to stop that. So that, for anyone who hasn't been to Formula One, that doesn't tend to happen. It's just a freak of physics. The young man, yeah, I've seen it on Twitter, got a cut in the arm by a bit of the the, the wheel rim. Uh, and it uh, jokingly said on the on the Twitter that he didn't even get to keep it because while he was getting medical treatment, somebody swiped it. <laughs> so, Well, at uh, least he was all right enough to make a joke about it. He was, he was <laughs> um, yeah. So he, he, the pictures were there, I'm smiling with a wee bit of cut on his arm. Mm. Uh, Fun story was, to tell his grandkids. Yeah, so he's but got still that. still a bit was, scary. Yeah, a bit scary, but you know, he, he was okay. Uh, he did say something about, I think he put his arm up to stop his girlfriend, who's a wee bit smaller, so it could have been worse. Mm, uh, he's lucky it was just the arm. But like you say, any motorsport events, there is an element of danger. We minimise them. You can never extinguish the danger completely, but you minimise it to the best ability. And I don't remember any time in the recent times that a spectator's been killed. It has been... Marshall's killed in the past and actually one was killed in Australia and that was a, another freak event mm. but it's been a while since we've had issues like that and you know long may, long may that continue Absolutely and even in motorsport as a whole obviously there was the time back in Le Mans where the where Mark Webber had his first attempt at flying lessons and flipped into the crowd and yeah, obviously Le Mans and stuff like that was more dangerous but as you said not something that has happened in a very long time Now then unfortunately we have Ooh, 26 days to wait until the next Grand Prix because, of course, the Chinese Grand Prix was supposed to be next week. There's supposed to be a two-week gap and then a two-week gap. 
And that was cancelled because of the thing that we don't mention anymore. And they never bothered to replace it, which is probably not the worst thing because there's already too many races this year. But as a result, we essentially have another summer break. The difference being that the factories don't have to shut down. So the the, the, the teams all get essentially an added bonus of development time. And wanted to move it on a little bit to a little bit of tech talk because... It's been an interesting first three races and we do sort of have this gap now where everyone started to see, okay, well, Red Bull have this and they've dominated. Ferrari, despite working all winter on repairing their reliability issues, clearly don't have any reliability at all. And McLaren are expecting a big upgrade for Baku and are making a few more tweaks to it. So I wanted to start with, I suppose, exactly that, this month-long, I suppose, oddity of a break. Oscar, do you think the likes of McLaren and Ferrari, maybe even Williams, Haas, can make a good inroads towards those top two, you know, Red Bull, Aston teams over the course of this month before Baku? Well, I mean, it's always a tricky to develop truly in Formula One because, of course, as many strides forward as you make as a team, your competitors will also be aiming to do exactly the same thing. Even Red Bull will be looking to develop what already seems like a, a, a dominant car in every sense. I mean, now they've got the straight line speed. <laughs> it really is It really is the, the race for second, really, in, <laughs> or third, I guess, in Formula One now. So it, it really remains to be seen whether teams can close up. I think when it comes to developing at a fast pace, it can often come down to are there some some real faults in the car? So, of course, a Mercedes's main goal last year was to was to reduce the porpoising that was you know blighting them so much in the early races and kind of got got on top of that as the season went on. So I think it's going to be tough to to, to really see too many teams make a step forward i think what we'd like to see is maybe the field to bunch up a little bit i'm sure ferrari will want to at least be fighting with the astons and the mercedes cars to uh, to try and fight the second i think it would be quite quite ambitious for them to now say they can go on and win, win titles this year to be honest and which is a shame because you know that that driver lineup continues to be one of the best on the grid and, and will be for, mm-hmm. for quite a few years really maybe more so about that Charles Leclerc than Carlos Sainz who still seems to be struggling a little bit with the pressure of one of the top teams McLaren they'll be looking to make some big step forwards that's for sure and I think those points in Australia of course Oscar getting his first points at his home race lovely to see and Lando picking up some good points as well that will hopefully be a springboard for them to to, to try and do something a little bit more and and to, to make their way up the grid but even though it is a large break and of course that's a real shame for us fans I think it's always a bit unrealistic to uh, to expect a team to make too many steps forward yeah I, I think you make a very good point there I think yes it's it's a good time to develop and they don't have to you know, break it up with a race in between. So it's a, a bit rare in that sense. But as you said, if if Mercedes found half a second, Red Bull probably find six tenths. So it, it, there is always that kind of cat and mouse game. One thing that Red Bull have been just all over at the moment is just their absolutely insane straight line speed coupes. And there was a lot of talk that maybe this was just the specifics of Jeddah a few weeks ago, really, really long straight, super high speed. But even in uh, at Albert Park, which is not a typically a, a high speed track especially not like top end high speed even with the 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 redesigns to the second sector the red bull was just breezing past cars especially sergio perez and it wasn't it wasn't like i don't think it was necessarily the the dominant car in the corners that we were seeing it was just that it looked like it had a v12 engine with 1500 horsepower in it 
Yeah. And yeah. Just, just, just to fire it off to you guys as well, and to Coops, just related to that question, how impressed are you guys at how well Red Bull have done with their, I guess, Honda engines, but of course rebranded in the Red Bull powertrains in terms of having this straight line speed? Because historically, Red Bull have been the team which are good in the corners, but really lack it in the straights. It's the engineering factor. It's the aero, they've just got an aero package that works. And I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of, it sounds like I'm diminishing it just. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you look at the two, the, the, the opposite ends of the spectrum, the Red Bull's DRS is just monstrous. And then you had Lando Norris and McLaren saying, we open the DRS and nothing happens. Mm, nothing at all. It just doesn't go. Maybe part of the reason why James Key isn't employed anymore. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's just Red Bull, for me, this season's going to be an interesting one. So Red Bull look like they're dominating. But what we need to remember is they've got 63% of their wind tunnel CFD time, whereas Aston Martin have 100, which equates mm. to about 118 runs in the wind tunnel. And look where Aston Martin have started and look where they're going to go. Mm. So I've said this at the start of the uh, a podcast at the start of the season, and I'll say it again, Red Bull are doing a brawn. They're banking as much as they can do now because this is going to hit them later on because they are not going to develop in the same pace as the other teams are going to be able to. Mm-hmm. So things are going to close up. When you look at Mercedes, yes, they don't have the, 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 the straight line speed, but they're in second place and they're third in the championship in constructors. You've got you know, Aston Martin, who are already there in a very, very good place. All it needs is Ferrari to figure out their, their issues with their power unit and then, you know, second half of the season, back who onwards, we're, we're seeing all these things come in, bigger upgrades, the smaller things drip feeding through. Red Bull can't do it. And also, all it'll take is Red Bull to put an upgrade on the car that doesn't work. Yeah, very true. And what did they do then? Like, other teams are going to catch up. They're going to be at the front for the full season. I'm not saying that they're going to drop down to fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth, but a bit like what happened to Braun when everyone got their own double diffusers. But it's going to be a lot closer, I think, as the season progresses than it looks right now. Yep, I, I think you're you're dead right on that. And I think that's something that might only play out maybe after the actual summer break, because I, th- I think you're right. I think Red Bull are going to do a brawl, not only in terms of just their performance, but I think their, I would imagine probably their, their just development plan is absolutely throw everything at the wall or at the car that you can in the first six months before we're really stifled on this ban or but this this limit and just hope that it all works and that we bank enough points. Moving on to, to the other team who might want to relook at a few things and have been saying that they will. Mercedes, obviously, they, they, Toto Wolf likes a bit of drama, doesn't he, Oscar? Saying it'll definitely be, you'll see a very different car in Baku. Will we after Australia? Do you think they're going to change the whole concept of the car and waste an entire year's worth of development Changing a car that is... Uh, uh, George Russell could have won that race if his engine hadn't blown up. Well, I, I think th- this is the argument, really. And as you say there, Toto does like to... Uh, does like to turn it into theatre a little bit in the, uh, in the, in the press, conferences, press conferences and the interviews. One thing which has stuck out to me and made me laugh a bit is seeing the reaction to, uh, to Toto's gripes and, you know, putting out that message, oh, we'll try our best, but, you know, we can't guarantee we'll win races for you, is that this car is still comfortably able to achieve podiums this year. I mean, there's, mm. there's no doubt about that, even with, you know, Aston Martin improving... Ferrari 
likely to get their act together. It's and sorry, I, I just I just say it's capable of scoring podiums with both cars because all respect to Lance Stroll, he's not on the level of Fernando Alonso. I think Lewis and, and George are on about the same level. Yeah, 100%. You know, fair play to Lance for coming in with a lack of pre-season time. We'll have to see how he does after this break now. Now the excuses are out. He's 100% mm. fit and we'll see if he can match Alonso. But I do agree with you that it's a tall order for him to match Fernando, who just seems to get better with age. I think it's quite amazing. And as you say, yeah, Lewis and George, great pairing. Russell has, you know, taken to to, to the Mercedes team like, like a duck in water. Fair play to him. And Lewis does seem to still be at his peak. Although I think there are signs that quality or perhaps desire might be waning ever so slightly after a challenging year and a couple of races. So I think really in Toto's mind, looking at the development, before Australia, there may have been some serious considerations about, you know, is this car going to be able to do it? There were some questions about Mike Elliott and whether he'd even be in the job if there were no improvements made. Now, I know that Perez had his issues and it wasn't exactly a, a plain sailing race for many drivers, but it showed that they can they can be up there, they can compete. And as you mentioned there, Sean, if George had have kept that first place without his car issues, then who knows what could have happened? Maybe he could have held off Verstappen with some clever driving and a solid use of his tyres, as Lewis kind of did against Alonso. So I think it would be premature to for them to really start all over again with the car. But realistically even though as you guys have mentioned there there's a like there's an expectation red bull will tail off a bit in performance i think it will still be too late for the mercedes team to to truly challenge for titles this year mm. but would they be disappointed with let's say second in the constructors and a few more wins, more wins for george and hamilton getting a few more wins as well overall is that the worst season in the world well i guess that's up to a uh, total wolf to decide Absolutely. And for, for a team like that, you know, when you've won eight championships on the spin, anything other than winning a championship is a failure from that level of success. Obviously, Williams or McLaren or Ferrari would have a different maybe metric of success. But yeah, you're right. But I don't think it's as bad as Lewis Hamilton claiming that the Red Bull is the most dominant car he's ever seen when, yes, it's quick. But especially in qualifying, Fernando Alonso pointed this out, you know, there's not that big a gap. There's less than about three tenths, maybe if Max is really on it in qualifying. Whereas no, in, the, in the in in the in the Mercedes days, it was a second easily well, over oh, the I, next car. Well, I was going to say, I mean, is is number forty four forgetting 2014, 2015, 2016 to mention possibly? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I short short memory seems to play in the role of drivers. You know, and you know, maybe I, I'm not sure. I can't exactly quote him, but I'm sure Seb Vettel maybe felt a bit in those late 2010s. Oh, you know, why can't I just be up there dominating? You know, this season's boring. This season's boring. Well, Formula One tends to go like that. Unfortunately, yeah. it is often one team dominating. So unfortunately, Toto just has to suck it up. And and what we'll see with Toto as well. And I heard a really interesting comment from Christian Horner about this. He's never really been in a situation where he is trailing in his mm. team principal career. I know he had a bit of a stint at Williams before, but I don't think that was in a real senior role. Went over to Mercedes, became team principal, and presided over one of the most dominant periods in F1. So if he really wants to be seen as one of these team principals up there with, you know, the likes of Ross Braun or someone like that, then he's going to have to find a way to, to make that Mercedes the best car on the grid again. Yeah, I think you're dead right. And I think we're seeing Christian Horner has come out the other side of that difficulty. He had his period of dominance. 
really struggled in especially 2014 when that Red Bull and his star boy were rubbish and he's had to just kind of suck it up, watch Mercedes vanish into the distance for a few years and kind of rally his team back to getting to where they are now, where they're back to being the dominant force. It will be interesting. I don't really want Mercedes to be dominating again, but I think you're right. I think I think Toto will stand among the greats when he can do something like that, if he can. Very quickly, just because we, we do love a, a touch on McLaren and I'm wearing my, my Lando Norris podium t-shirt today. Do you think, the Coops, they've said that this upgrade for Baku will be essentially a B-spec car? Is this make or break? Is this this car works or we give up for next year? Or do you think they'll they'll get their act together with this one? I don't think it's going to get them exactly where they want to be, but it's going to get them pretty much there, there or thereabouts. I think Andrea Stella did stay, say that the upgrade isn't going to... The, up, the back upgrade is still not going to meet their targets, but it will put them where they probably should have started the season for them to build on. I would be very surprised if it's the, if they have another massive upgrade I think what will happen is that will be the big one and then they'll bring other slightly smaller ones to complement it I certainly hope for us not so secret McLaren fans that they don't plug this B-spec car in it doesn't work <laughs> I think if that happens then yeah they'll go to next year with their new kind of setup and stuff but it's certainly the me it's not make or break but it certainly is going to make them change a few targets if it doesn't mm. work well, it's not all doom and gloom anymore, thanks to a little bit of good fortune in Australia. Although you could say they maybe earned earned it after a weekend of just horrible fortune in Jeddah. They're back to fifth in the constructors. They're only 14 points behind Ferrari. And Lando is ahead of Charles Leclerc in the standings, which is bizarre to think when McLaren have had the worst that's start. bonkers, honestly. That, I, I, I can't that believe that. It <laughs> <laughs> shows once again how, how much Ferrari likes shooting themselves in the foot. And how everything can change from one week to the next. Moving on then, like we said, the next race is in Baku, which is a good while away. And I wanted to quickly touch on the the logistics of Formula One for a second, because all the talk in the sport at the moment is about being carbon neutral and that the 2026 rules are going to have 100% biofuels and we're going carbon zero and all this. And yet, this season, we're going from Baku, which is essentially in the Middle East, to Miami, back to Imola in Europe in the space of two weeks. That is the stupidest sort of decisions I've ever seen, especially when you consider that a couple of weeks after that, going back to North America for Montreal. Wouldn't they have moved Miami there to at least make it a little bit more sensical? What do you make of their, Oscar, their, their just, it just doesn't seem to make any sense at all, these logistics. Yeah, it, it, it's bizarre, sure. And uh, as you kind of mentioned there, this is certainly an era, I guess, globally in everything, but, you know, in F1, of course, and motorsport, where we're trying to become more green. And, you know, we all know the logistics of Formula One don't exactly lend itself to that. I know they are hybrid engines now and, you know, we're moving away. But, you know, I remember seeing a quote a few years ago from a certain Formula E promoter <laughs> saying that the days of Formula One are over and electric motorsport is is going to be the only form in a few decades time now i i don't want to agree with that person is as i'm more of a fan of f1 and i think it does have a place in the world but it certainly doesn't help itself when we are carting around all this equipment sending all of these employees and everyone over there and going 
this way and that every couple of weeks when the reality of it is that we're only doing it for sport and just to have a good time and watch off the teams and drivers go round and round on tracks. So I'm not saying that F1 isn't important and, you know, I commend it for the work it's done so far and in its sustainability goals. But I have to agree with you that it seems it seems like a strange one that with China dropping off the grid and, you know, we did know that quite a while ago now. I understand the logistics are tricky to shuffle around races, ticketing and so on, sponsorship. But if everyone, if F1 does want to be taken seriously as a sport which can work in this future of, you know, environmental conservation, this is giving, you know, reason for people to say otherwise, really, with a calendar so spread out and crossing so many continents in such a short space of time. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading something the other day there, Coops, that on paper, at least, it's it's a simple enough fix. Now, I'm sure contracts and logistics and all this sort of stuff and money obviously will play into it. But so it's not going to change for next year for sure. For sure. But is it is it as simple as just do it by continent? Do the Asia's and maybe Australia and the Asia's first, then go to Europe and then go to the Americas, or then go to the Americas and then go to Europe, or somewhere else? Like, why are we going from the Middle East slash Europe to America? to Europe, to America, or to Canada, to Europe, all around Europe. And then we have a big chunk over in the Americas. We've got Texas, we've got Vegas, we've got Brazil and Mexico, all essentially back to back to back, which makes total sense. Why is Miami not there? Why is Canada not there? The reason Miami's not there is because the American football season, which is September to February, and they race around the Miami Dolphin Sunlight Stadium. That's a fair point. So that's the reason why Miami is so early in the season. Uh, so, but I mean, they don't start Miami unless there are other things going on during the summer. But you know, the Formula uh, Formula One, the NFL season doesn't start till like late August, mid August. Mm. So maybe certain parts of it's blacked out because of you know training camps and that sort of thing. So the stadium becomes more alive later on. So for Miami, it has to be April or May or whenever it is. But yeah, I mean, I don't get it. They have talked about making things a bit more geographical and then you see the calendar and you're doing that and you're like, what? Okay, uh, I don't get it. Will it ever happen? Probably not. Because the other thing you've got to remember is weather. You know, if you put the ages at a certain time, like remember Bernie Eccleston decided to have the Malaysian Grand Prix during the tornado season and rain season. <laughs> uh, that worked well. Well, you that say that, the- you say that, but... Japan had to have typhoon weather tires at one point. And obviously we saw, I'd be polite and say mess that was last year because of the rain, because of the time of year. that. Japan, and I've been in Japan in late August and it's very hot, very humid. And when it rains, you drown. Yes. So, I mean, they have, they has known to have issues in terms of like putting it at that. Like we've done it one year. Kimi Raikkonen parked his car and got a chalk out that year. Because he knew, you know, Let's not start again. And I think, uh, funnily enough, actually, Braun, I was watching something recently about a list of podcasts, and Jensen Button said if the race restarted, we weren't starting again because the, the steering wheel was just full of water and they didn't have a spare steering wheel. So they were quite glad that it didn't have to come back on. Oh, was that was that Malaysia 09, was it? Yeah, uh, it was Malaysia 09, yeah. So yeah, they were quite glad. They took the steering wheel out and done that, and put, turned it upside down and water just poured out. So they have had some own goals in terms of putting things in that perspective but you know surely the, the greatest minds of logistics could sit around the table and go right when's the best time to have a Formula 1 race in Asia 
well, this is when it's sunny, this is when it's not too sunny and not too humid, this is when it's not really rainy, right? We'll group them here. The problem you have is everyone wants a slice of the pie and everyone wants a slice of the pie in their own terms. And Formula One wants certain races and wants certain countries and wants certain things to happen. So it's all about compromise. Mm. So we're never, ever, 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 ever going to get it where it's 100% geographical and makes perfect sense because when you bow to one person, you're showing your ass to somebody else. And that's just how it's going to be. Oh, there's the clip that's going on TikTok for this episode. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. Well, I think there's there's certainly conversations, like you said, they have the best strategist minds in the world working on this sport. Surely, obviously, you know, certain concessions probably have to be made at all times. I know Abu Dhabi have a big long-term contract to host the season finale and Bahrain have one to host the season opener. Doesn't make sense in my head because they're right beside each other. But, you know, maybe something will change eventually. And maybe this is why Sebastian Vettel left, because maybe he knew that it would never really change fully, would it? Finally, then, an interesting news story broke. I believe it was this morning. Does everybody remember Crashgate? <laughs> How can we most of yeah. Crashgate? That, that, that whole season. The, the thing we very nearly had a repeat of a couple of weeks ago. Where in the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix for the, the, the newer Formula One fans among us and welcome, we're delighted that you're fans of the sport now. Nelson Piquet driving, Nelson Piquet Jr., I should say, not his racist father, driving for <laughs> Renault was instructed to crash his car in the most just blatant way so that Fernando Alonso could get the benefit of a safety car and win the race. And it was proved that he did this illegally and it was completely race fixing. And there was a whole big thing. There's a big, big, a great YouTube video about it. It's about half an hour long going into all the, the mire and details of it. I would highly recommend that you look it up if you've never gone into the minutiae of this. I bring all of this up because Felipe Massa, who lost the world championship that year to Lewis Hamilton in the last race, has plans to evaluate whether there are any legal routes that could help him challenge the outcome of the 2008 Formula One World Championship. This all comes about because of some comments that Bernie Eccleston made, which essentially, where he essentially admitted that he knew everything was illegal about the Singapore Grand Prix, and the rule said they should have cancelled that Grand Prix and not counted it towards the championship. But himself and Max Mosley let it go, let the championship finish, and by the time Lewis Hamilton lifted the trophy... Nothing could be changed. So lots of drama. We love a bit of a random kind of tinfoil hat chat about the chances of previous results and championships being changed. But Coops, is Massa yes. just looking for a bit of attention or does he have a leg to stand on in this one? I mean, I, I don't think he's necessarily looking for attention, but he's not really got a leg to stand on. I think he's admitted that the chances of things changing are pretty slim. But well, why, why not ask the question? You know, he was given advice at the time by Fry's lawyers. He was given advice by his own lawyers at the time. But there's nothing we can do. And the rule book, we said that once the trophy was handed to Lewis Hamilton at the time, it's set in stone. You can't do anything about it. So what's made the change, as you pretty much alluded to, and said that the way the rules were written in 2008, that the situation meant that that Singapore Grand Prix should have been cancelled. Mm. The, the way that everything finished, Massa would have and Massa and Tim would have been tied for points, but Massa would have won it on count back because he'd had six Grand Prix wins to five. So that's how that that's what he's basically saying. And ended up what happened was he was the champion for about 40 seconds until Lewis Hampton passed Glock in the last corner to get his fifth place, which took his 
to come what he needed to win the title. It's it's a it's a shame it's a shame that that has been brought up. It's a shame that it still plays in Mass's mind. I don't know what it's going to do with the with people really see him as a champion because he managed to get a court ruling of obscure law or, or something fifteen years later. I don't know if I would. I wouldn't be like, oh, he's the champion. I mean, it's done and dusted. Mm. It's interesting that he's looking at it, and it's a bit silly of. Eccleston to decide to come out now but you know there's there's so many things to go through I mean it could be started pretty quick I mean there's that term uh, statute of limitation you know where well, there's the statute of limitations but there's also FIA statutes that say that the court of arbitration of sport may only be involved in matters relating to the FIA's anti-doping disciplinary committee so they wouldn't even yes. really have any jurisdiction to overturn anything anyway so Oscar, it was a bit odd of Bernie Eccleston to have essentially volunteered this information under, like, he wasn't under torture. He wasn't dragged out of him. He offered this information. Weird that he'd admit to it. Obviously, it's been so long. But do you think Massa maybe just should have kept it under wraps that he was even looking into this rather than make a whole thing about it so the whole world knows, well, you're not going to get it, mate. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a tricky one, Sean, because, I mean, Bernie must be loving it, sitting in his in his villa, smoking on a fat cube and just staring the pot from afar. Honestly, what a man he is. But yeah, a very strange time to reveal this information. Of course, it's a long time ago. We all know what happened, really, if you've been following F1 for a while. If not, I'm sure you're aware now, thanks to this, this great little catch up from the three of us. And um I think the fact is, in terms of looking at Massa's approach, is that in the modern day, a lot of things are achieved via publicity. It's kind of the way it goes now, really. And unfortunately, causing a big fuss, whether that be for a statement, as he seems to have done there, and it's now been picked up by the publishers, such as ourselves at Everything F1 and Autosport and so on, and also social media, it can be a way to kind of galvanise change, you know, the, the more kind of fuss you create and maybe a petition comes from it there's you know a scandal maybe certain fans choose to boycott the race come come brazil for example or holding up banners saying massa is the rightful champion now in this situation if i'm being realistic for felipe as much as i love him and i felt heartbroken for him to lose that championship in the way that he did i cannot see any way that this that this will change the outcome of that championship but i think mm. it would just be way too complicated the um, the technicalities of course hamilton's feeling towards it i don't think that it's going to happen but bernie's comments were really interesting of course bernie eccleson who was in charge of formula one at the time for those who don't know the fact he says he did know about it and he kind of twisted the arm of his former driver nelson pk it all just seems a bit shady for me and we've kind of touched on it a lot on this podcast the idea of f1 you know as a sport maybe dividing the lines between entertainment and sport mm. and you know while i understand what he's saying you know let's brush it under the carpet so we avoid a scandal what it feels like now although it's a long time ago is just giving more fuel to the fire for fans to say that that title was not earned in the same way that many people will say and I do not subscribe to this, despite being a Hamilton fan, that Verstappen did not rightly win his first championship. At the end of the day, it may not have created scandal then, but it's once again bringing the sport into disrepute now. And I don't see that as any better for, as an F1 fan personally. 
Absolutely. And I think I think you're dead right. I think this will bring up a lot of conversations about 2021 for right or wrong, probably mostly for wrong about the validity of Max's championship. Not that I'm questioning that either. Fair and square, he's a two time champion. But I'm sure there will be conversations about that of, oh, well, why doesn't Lewis challenge the 2021? Because that was all blah, 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 blah. And that was all whatever. But I think it is interesting. I, th- I thought it was an interesting thing to be brought up. It gave us something to talk about for sure. It's been all over the internet. Every Obviously, people are already a little bit starved for F1 <laughs> news with a month of, of content to fill. But yeah, it was, it was a really, really odd thing to just to just come out this week. But uh, listen, Felipe, best of luck with it. Yeah. What well, 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 I'll caveat this with? The, the, the discussion is about the way the rules were written in 2008. So the, the same processes aren't going to be there. Also, what Total Will, what, what Total Will said back in 2021 was there's no point to appeal it because we're going to ask the FIA to basically investigate themselves, which hasn't changed. You know, so, you know, they, they can't go to the normal court system under that because it won't work. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to go to the FIA and say, you did wrong, go look at it. What the FIA are you going to say? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 I've got the article here from Autosport here, and what he said was that Max Mosley uh, knew of the situation in the 2008 season, and he added, we decided not to do anything for now. We wanted to protect the sport and save it from a huge scandal. That's why I used my angelic tongues to persuade my former driver, Nelson Piquet, to keep calm for the time being. Back then, there was a rule that a World Championship classification after the FIA award ceremony at the end of the year was untouchable. So Hamilton was presented with the trophy and everything was fine. We had enough information in time to investigate the matter. According to statutes, we should have cancelled the race in Singapore under these conditions. That means he would never; it would never have happened for the championship standings and Felipe Wessa would become champion and not Lewis Hamilton. So... It's pretty. Basically, what he did was he buried it because he didn't want F1 to get a scandal. And he used his dodgy dealings to make sure it didn't come out. That's our Bernie. Yeah. That's Bernie. That was, how, that was how he ran Formula One from the start to finish. It was good. It was a good time in Formula One. It was a good time. But anyway, that will just about do it for us. We will, of course, keep you updated in our next podcast and throughout our website if anything does actually develop on this story that is newsworthy. Most likely, it'll be that it has been, you know, shut down that probably happened before this episode goes up knowing my luck that happened last time didn't it yes it did i said something wasn't going to happen and then it did good times but that will do it for us thank you very very much for listening thank you to my panel thank you coops thank you cheers thank you oscar thank you guys and thank you again for listening. Don't forget to check us out on socials at JoinEF1, everywhere you find social media, and check out our website, everythingf1.com. Also, don't forget you can get 10% off everything at theraceworks.com using our code EF1, so be sure to check that out. They have some absolutely brilliant Formula 1 merch over there. We will see you in the next podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and good evening.